Greetings and welcome to episode 18 of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I am your host, Gil Maza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Here is part two of the epic podcast episode with retired Associate Chief Gary Labby as he relates to us for his first-hand account of the very first Bortac class. Yes, the story of Bortac 1 exclusively at Old Patrol HQ. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. And then after that, after that, we started getting training because what they would do, the next class, class number two, they would uh, have all of us detailed down for the last few days of training of class number two and they did the same for class three Mm. so then uh some of the photos that i took are from from some of those sessions when we responded uh and like i said they only did it for a couple of classes because border patrol finally wised up and decided to take control of the training because i think class two they only had If I may interject here, you sent me a letter that uh, was written on official Department of Justice letterhead, and it says basically uh, September 27, 1984, to any airline ticket agent or airline pilot. This is to inform you that United States Border Patrol agent Gary Labby is a member of an official nationwide special response team. Because of the immediate call-out responsibilities, he must carry specialized equipment with him while en route to a training site or when responding to an emergency. He's authorized to carry a sidearm and a rifle or shotgun. All weapons will be carried unloaded in safe condition. If you have any questions regarding his travel, you may call and then it's got the number 24 hours a day. And your inquiries will be answered by either the chief patrol agent or deputy chief patrol agent. And then it's signed Douglas M. Crum, Chief Patrol Agent Holton, Maine. Yeah, yeah, that was Doug Crum. Crum. Doug, Doug was the chief uh, of the sector at the time. Doug went on to become chief of the entire Border Patrol. Ah. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I was selected by him to come to headquarters as his associate uh, down the road. Uh, so yeah, I. I had that letter that I presented along with my ID and back then they weren't as stringent on airlines as they are today. I mean, I remember getting a call out. My wife had gone to the grocery store when I was living up there in northern Maine. I get a call out and they said, uh, Chrome North has erupted. You need to get down here now. And I had to leave my wife a note saying, 
I'm on my way to Florida. <laughs> oh. I'll call you when I can. <laughs> so, you know, she's gone for an hour at the grocery store, comes back that note on the table. Yeah, no husband is gone. And doesn't, and doesn't see me for the next two or three weeks. So that, that was how uh, the conditions we were we were living under as, as you know, as board tackers. Yeah. And, and again, the airlines, uh, I remember at that time when they issued us Mini-14s, they failed to issue us uh, gun cases. Mm. So we didn't have any gun cases. We had just been issued our Mini-14s when we got the, uh, the call out to, to Chrome, one of the first call outs. And uh, I had a garment bag, so I put the Mini-14 in my garment bag. Oh. And, uh, you know, went to the airline counter carrying the garment bag, showed them the letter. They would escort me through security around so I wouldn't have to go through the, uh, the buzzer or the, the metal detector. And I'd board the plane. Well, I boarded the plane like that, just having shown them the letter and my ID with a, uh, you know, fully automatic Mini-14 and my sidearm. And I just hung the garment bag in the uh, garment uh, container when you board the plane. There's a place for garment bags. I just hung it there, uh, not wanting to bring it to the seat with me, right, right next to the pilots. <laughs> oh. And I almost felt like telling the pilots, hey, you know, uh, I just boarded one of your plane with a, with a, a rifle, you know, and there wasn't yeah. much security. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was, you know. We eventually got uh, gun-carrying cases. But yeah, we would, I think everybody from all the sectors had similar letters to present to, to save any uh, any holdups. I mean, I remember flying, uh, when I went to sniper training in uh, California, I remember flying with a uh, 308 uh, rifle and a thousand rounds of ammo, all <laughs> oh, in the metal, metal boxes. Uh, and I flew down the road with some of the board tackers uh, that had uh, plastic explosives. Unbelievable. Them, trying to think flashbangs. Yeah, flashbangs. You know, because yeah. we all carried flashbangs. And, and like I said, a few of the explosive experts actually carried plastic explosives. So like I said, uh, Things back then were a little looser than they would ever be today. Oh, well, no, no we kidding. would never have gotten away with uh, any of that. Uh, yes, any, any of that uh, action. Yep. And you sent me you sent me your certificate here from the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. It says a uh, certificate certificate of completion of course. This is to certify that Gary H. Labby has successfully completed a 40-hour training course under the direction of the training division entitled Basic Sniper Course, dated 25th of July, 1986. Yep, there's a, another interesting little story behind that, you know, mm -hmm. that I'll briefly go into. I had been trained as a hostage negotiator, and like I said, that's the reason I joined board that. I wanted to take advantage of, of some of the training, and they actually sent me to uh, Texas A&M University. And at the time, uh, it was called the Texas Academy 
for the prevention and control of extraordinary violence. Uh, and I have, I'm looking at my certificate there in front of me, uh, successfully completed the course and hostage negotiations. After I took the hostage negotiations course, which was a great, one of the best courses I've ever taken, they actually had video of live hostage situations and uh, uh, really super, super training. The following year, they offered sniper training. So I thought, geez, I've been trained in hostage negotiations. Why don't I apply for sniper training? Now, I knew absolutely nothing about, you know, sniper training or anything having to do with snipers. Yeah, I'd yeah. grown up in northern Maine. I was familiar with rifles, like hunted deer, uh, but that was the extent of it. And then they instructed the sector to uh, provide us with a sniper rifle and a uh, thousand rounds of 308 ammo. So at the time, uh, the only rifle they could uh, drum up was a 308 deer rifle, mm -hmm. which, you know, anybody familiar with snipers, <laughs> it's not a sniper rifle. Yeah. But that's what I flew to California with. Uh, a thousand rounds of ammo and a 308 deer rifle. Showed up at uh, uh, Vortex sniper training, which was being held at Camp Pendleton in your area, Gil. Not, mm -hmm. not far from, from San Clemente. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, and I'll, I'll name some of the guys that uh, were with me here because I've got. I've got a picture that I should have sent you showing us there in, uh, in California at, at sniper training. Uh, Dave Moody. Uh, Dave, I believe, was from Texas, uh, PIC in, in New Mexico, I think. Bob Coleman. Bob later uh, left the patrol and became the uh, district director up in Seattle. Ron Colburn. You know, Ron also was, you know, in chief and in, in headquarters and yeah, i got to work with a little bit uh with him a little bit did you yes and in headquarters dc yeah i did ron was another one of the, the, the good guys and a good friend uh also in the photo is jeff calhoun uh and again jeff i think was out el centro uh, uh assistant commander board tag down the road and then uh, roy wilson uh, and I think Roy came out of uh, Montana, I'm not positive there. And then Timmy Kartner from Swanton Sector. Timmy was a character, and then mm -hmm. Timmy has since, I think he, he passed on a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, Tim had been a pilot, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Anyway, that was, that was us. There were seven of us showing up for Camp Pendleton. And the uh, San Clemente agents met us at the airport and drove us to uh, the Ramada Inn, and I believe it's, is it I-5 or I-8 that's off of the... I-5. I-5, okay, the Ramada Inn off of I-5. We got there, uh, most of us uh, straggled in late evening. They put us up on the top floor and uh, unbeknownst to us, which we found out the following morning, Clint Eastwood and a whole bunch of actors were staying 
uh, Ramada and uh, were filming uh, Heartbreak Ridge yeah. at Camp Pendleton, the movie Heartbreak Ridge. Well, we found out uh, the next morning, we're all standing in the lobby getting some coffee, the elevator pops open, and off walks Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and that's where we all recognized him. <laughs> and uh, he's got a girl with him. Uh, he had uh, a young young girlfriend at the time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he walks off the elevator and just nods his head at us and keeps walking on. So I go up to the desk and I said, hey, uh, <laughs> what's going on? They said, well, that's, uh, they're filming a movie here. That's, you know, Clint Eastwood and his, uh, his crew. And uh, the girl said, uh, we thought you guys were part of the movie. <laughs> that's why we put you up on the top floor with them. <laughs> I said, no, no. And at the time, we were all in camis and had our gun cases. And so they figured we were actors. <laughs> they had no clue that we were part of a sniper team. You're the real. You were the real thing. Yeah, right. So I can still, like I said, we uh, went to uh, sniper training that day, and uh, the San Diego Sheriff's Office were the ones uh, contracted to uh, to instruct us. Now, initially, it had been the L.A. SWAT team. But something happened in L.A. where things went south with their SWAT team. Uh, Somebody had taken a hostage at one of the high-end stores on Rodeo Drive, Rodeo Drive, and I think they ended up shooting one of the hostages and mistaken for the hostage takers. Mm. So anyway, they, they bowed out of our training because of all that bad publicity going on. So San Diego stepped in which was actually to our benefit because the head uh, sniper for the San Diego uh, SWAT team was a guy by the name, a deputy by the name of Grant Burnett. And I've since, uh, watching cops over the years, I I used to see Grant there. (laughs) He'd he'd be on cops as a sergeant eventually. But Grant was married to the uh, daughter of... uh, former Colonel McMaster, who had written the Marine Corps Sniper Manual. Ah. So he was there. Uh, the Colonel retired, was wow. actually there during our training, instructing us. That's amazing. So we got, like I said, superb uh, Class A training. And uh, getting back to uh, Clint Eastwood, I, I can still see, like I said, he was directly across the room, the hall from my room, and uh, I remember, I think it was Jeff and, uh, and Ron Colburn uh, were in their room with the door open, and they would hone in with their sniper rifles on the uh, traffic, you know, just sighting in their rifles <laughs> on the unloaded, of course. Of, you know, of course. They, they, they would sight in on the traffic going by on I-5, and to this day, I can still see Clint Eastwood come out of his room, walk by uh, Ron and Jeff's room, stop and do a double take, <laughs> where he sees two guys in camis with sniper rifles honing in on the trail. <laughs> and Clint just kept going. <laughs> he just 
<laughs> he did a quick take and just headed for the elevator. <laughs> so that, like I said, that was one of the more uh, comical moments. Now, we were uh, the next morning picked up by San Clemente agents, brought us over to San Clemente Station, and uh, from there we uh, were taken to San Diego Airport where a customs helicopter was going to take us into the foothills of uh, San Diego in the back country to uh, go through a sniper training session took us to the airport to the helicopter and I remember sitting in the helicopter with all the other guys and with Timmy Carter like now like I mentioned Tim had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam so he told us you know so Tim looks over at the customs guy and he says hey can I take the controls now we're sitting on the runway of the San Diego airport with flights coming in and going out and we all looked at each other and we knew Tim. Like I said, Tim was a character. Yeah. And we thought, oh God, this is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting in the middle of a runway and Tim's going to take the control. So the pilot agrees to let him take the control. Wow. He takes the control and he stalls the helicopter <laughs> on the runway as there's a 747 coming in, bearing down. <laughs> There's always that one yeah. agent, right? Pardon me? I said there's always that one agent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, Tim was a, Tim was a, a character. <laughs> he, was a, he was a funny guy. I mean, he was always getting into some type of trouble. You know? Yeah. but 
we didn't have anything to eat. Mm-hmm. So we get back to the uh, Ramada uh, at night, you know, it's a late evening, and, uh, you know, we're all starving, but the restaurants are closed, and there's no takeouts anywhere nearby, and, and we're all beat anyway. So I go up to head up to my room, and there's a vending machine in the hallway. So I thought, great, I'll, at least I'll get a bag of chips or a candy bar, you know? Yeah. So I, I only had about a dollar and quarters. So I put the quarters in and pulled the knob, and as luck would have it, the machine malfunctioned. Of course. So I'm standing there in front of the machine, and I hear the elevator door open. Now the elevator door opens, and it's Clint Eastwood carrying a tray of fruit. He's got three or four oranges, a couple of bananas. I guess he had snuck down to the kitchen and gotten something for him and his girlfriend. (laughs) And as he's walking by carrying the tray, I'm kicking the hell out of the machine, trying to get my quarters back or the machine to (laughs) give me a candy bar. So again, I see him, he stops, and just looks at me and and just nods his head and keeps going <laughs> saying what the hell is going on with these guys first they're they're sniping in on traffic and now this guy's kicking the hell out of machines <laughs> so anyway uh, long story short goes back to his room i go back to my room and he had left two oranges outside his his uh hotel door oh man i guess he felt sorry Wow. So, anyway, that's my uh, my Clint Eastwood story. Oh, my God. You didn't didn't eat those oranges, did you? Uh, Of course I did. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't save them as souvenirs? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I probably should have. Like I said, when you haven't haven't eaten all day and you're going after midnight, I'll eat anything that, that is left for me. Yeah, that's Plus, pretty I didn't want to insult him. You know, I figured, hey, he's kind-hearted enough to, to feel sorry for me. I'm not going to, you know, yeah. not eat his orange. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's nice that he was that classy about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, and then uh, on top of that, we, uh, uh, we'd go out, do the sniper training during the day, come back in the early evening, and they'd have uh, happy hour down at the Ramada bar. So we got to drink with some of the crew, some of the uh, lesser known actors in, in Heartbreak Ridge. Uh-huh. Everybody but uh, Clint uh, Eastwood never came down to the bar, but he wasn't one to socialize much from what the actors were telling me, but uh, they were socializers. So, so we got to drink, have a few beers. I remember sitting at the bar with uh, the uh, black, uh, African-American actor in Heartbreak yeah, Ridge. Yeah, Mario played, uh, uh, played the gunnery sergeant, Moses Gunn. Real oh. nice guy. I remember him telling me stories about Hollywood. And, you know. So that was another another plus there, another blessing and that we never expected. You know, yeah, to be, yeah. To, to meet up with... Uh, to, to meet up with these guys and... I eventually uh, was able to watch Heartbreak Ridge, which was a pretty good movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of one of Eastwood's uh, better movies. 
Agreed. Okay, let me uh, let me wrap, try and wrap up here. I don't want to be boring people with all my stories, but I've still got a couple of incidents that I'd like to cover. Uh, yeah, trust me, sir. Th th this hasn't been boring in the very in the least. I mean, this has just been <laughs> so. I am sitting here just beside myself, listening to all these details, and it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's. Uh, I've, I've been blessed over the years to be to be part of uh, incidents and situations, and uh, just like I said, uh, I'm glad that you know you're giving me the opportunity to, to pass some of this on because it's it's things that I had been uh, uh, when I worked with uh, a crew here in New Jersey with the Casino Control Commission. After I retired from the control, they kept telling me, "Jesus, write a book." You know, they couldn't yeah. believe some of the stories that that I had. You know. Yeah. But uh, but this is better. Well, <laughs> Doing a podcast is a little easier. Well, this is pure old patrol gold. I I think that um, any of us who are who will listen to this in the future. Um, are just going to be uh, honored to be. Like I said, you know, you're on. You said you were honored to be part of this whole of the of, of this um, of our agency and all the adventures and experiences you had. And I think that um, allows us to be proud too. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm just just glad to be able to share share some of it. And, uh, and the other benefit is I'm starting to hear from old friends that I haven't heard from in decades. You know, with with the internet now and Facebook and everything, you know, people have been getting in touch, which is, which is good. You know, I like to reconnect with old friends, so that that's a, another another blessing. And I think after this anyway, podcast, you're going to hear from a lot more of them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let me get into uh, one of the incidents that I had mentioned to you earlier. Okay. Which is uh, an incident that happened. In 1985, in New Orleans uh, Border Patrol sector, and it uh, was referred to at the time, and it made the national and international news. And the story behind it at the time wasn't really publicized, again, to protect agents involved and uh, not stir up uh, international incidents. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this was referred to as the Medvid Incident. Now, Medvid was a Soviet seaman. His first name was Miroslav. Miroslav Medvid. He jumped ship in uh, 85 from a freighter, a Soviet grain freighter called, named the Marshal Konev. This grain freighter was docked in New Orleans uh, Harbor. He attempted to uh, gain political asylum and was picked up by the New Orleans Border Patrol. And according to reports now, he was ordered to return to the ship that same night. Mm -hmm. I don't know the circumstances why he was ordered to return to the ship, because uh, this is one incident I wasn't involved in. I did get the call, but I couldn't get down there fast enough. It was just a snowstorm in Maine, and I, there's no way I was flying out. So, mm -hmm. But I did get the story from uh, a few of the agents that were involved at the time. 
a ship, INS at the time, and the State Department made plans to board the ship after local news broke and the story soon became national news. Even the Attorney General, who at the time was Ed Meese, authorized uh, authorization for BORTAC came from that high up to surreptitiously board the ship in the middle of the night or in the early morning hours to secure Medvid and make things safe for the State Department. Because the State Department weren't really law enforcement type guys. They were more, uh, 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 I don't know how to describe it, more nerdish uh, book types or whatever, mm -hmm. educated. Uh, so they weren't really law enforcement minded. So they didn't want to board the ship uh, afraid of something may happen to them. Yeah. So Vortag uh, did. Uh, Two or three of the agents, uh, and like I said, I'm not going to name any agents because I, I don't want to give undue pu uh, publicity to, to, you know, since th there may have been uh, agreements, confidentiality agreements signed on this whole incident. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was so broad in scope. But anyway, they boarded the ship using uh, scuba gear in the harbor and uh make uh, uh, propelling equipment with hooks and whatever they were able to to board the ship and they located Medvid in the uh, hull of the ship he was in a makeshift cell and uh, there were actually armed guards aboard that ship and uh, one of the things that and again, this was a never verified, publicized. One of the things the BORTAC agents noticed is there was a lot of sophisticated communications gear aboard a Soviet grain freighter. Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, the Soviet was known to be actively spying on us. And I think this was one of their spy ships <laughs> that, that was docked in New Orleans uh -huh. Harbor. Anyway, that morning, State Department and the INS boarded the ship and obtained agreement from the ship's captain that Medved be re-interviewed and that they were would be allowed to remove him from the ship and uh, interview him uh, away from the ship. So the ship's captain granted the request naturally a lot due to the fact that Bortak was there. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, he didn't want any confrontations, or uh, especially, like I said, if there was something uh, not quite uh, kosher about the ship. So uh, for two days, the State Department interviewed uh, Medved, and uh, according to the State Department, he withdrew his political asylum claim on the second day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm guessing that his family was probably threatened over in the Soviet Union. Long story short, they returned him to the ship the following day. They had a subsequent investigation, a Senate investigation, turned out to be an exercise in futility. Uh, they had report after report filed, and then the matter was eventually uh, closed. 
Medved was returned to the Soviet Union and never heard from again. Uh, so anyway, that, like I said, that's the backstory on the, the Medved incident. Okay, jumping ahead now, I'm going to go to the Atlanta Penitentiary riots. Uh, that, again, was a national news story. If anybody Googles the Atlanta Penitentiary riot, they'll see photos of the prison practically gutted. Uh, at the time, and this happened in uh, November of 87, mm-hmm. at the time, Atlanta Penitentiary was holding... 1,500 Mariel boatlift Cuban inmates that had come over on the Mariel boatlift. A majority of them were criminals, uh, mental cases. They decided to uh, riot and revolt because they were told that they were they were being returned to Cuba, which is the last place they wanted to go back to because they had already been released from prisons and mental institutions there in Cuba, boarded onto boats and, and allowed to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So they decided to set fire. The fire started in a broom factory. Now, why in God's name that they had a broom factory in a penitentiary, I have no clue. But it's an ideal place to burn the penitentiary down. Yeah. And that basically, that's, that's what happened. During the riot, one inmate uh, was shot dead. Five others were shot by prison guards who were overreacting to the riot at the, at the onset. The FBI HRT team was called up along with the Marshall SOG unit, with the uh, BORTAC units. This was a big incident that needed all hands on board. Mm-hmm. And naturally, whenever the FBI is involved, they take the lead, whether you want them to or not. Yeah. So, you know, in all my dealings with the FBI over the years, I found they're always in the front of the pack and uh, the first ones to uh, be in the news. And, yes. Uh, so all the so movies are right. Pardon me? I said, so all the movies are true. Yeah. When I do the uh, podcast on headquarters, <laughs> I'll, I'll reveal an incident with the FBI that I worked on my last week at the headquarters, which involves a serial killer, Rosendo Ramirez, the railway killer. Yeah. I've got a great story there and documentation okay. on the FBI trying to screw over the Border Patrol. Anyway, Looking I'm forward to get it. off course here. During the penitentiary riots, naturally, we're all called up. Now, they uh, sent uh, me and a uh, few Swanton sector uh, SWAT team agents. At that time, the sectors had started organizing their own uh, SWAT teams to handle things locally. Swanton was one. When I got back to Holton, I formed a SWAT unit there. The chiefs were more comfortable with that, not wanting to call Bortak out for every little incident that happened. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like I said, they detailed myself and and a few Swanton sector team agents, and I think uh, Timmy Gardner was part of that, too, Timmy and I. Uh, Timmy had been in class number two, of Bortak. Okay. Anyway, they flew us to Dulles International Airport 
outskirts in a local motel awaiting further instructions in case things really went to hell in Atlanta, which they were destined to. Mm -hmm. We would uh, be called up to back up uh, the on-scene board taggers and uh, uh, prepare for a mass assault on the prison. Uh, now, if there had been a mass assault, I may probably wouldn't be here because we got intel reports that uh, these guys were hardcore. Some of them were armed. They had seized 35 hostages, uh, prison guards, prison secretaries, you know, prison uh, workers. So they had 35 hostages and they had uh, hooked up jury-rigged propane tanks at different places in the uh, prison uh, wired to blow up if there was an assault. So they were, like I said, they, they were experienced, they were organized. Yeah. So we weren't, uh, weren't looking forward to being called, called down there. Uh, fortunately, again, the Attorney General's office got involved the hostage negotiators told the ringleaders of the inmate that a moratorium had been imposed by INS and the State Department on any deportations uh, back to Cuba, and that the government would set up Cuban review panels to review each case individually. So the inmates agreed to that. Uh, they knew that they better agree to something because, like I said, uh, there was, they knew that there was a, a mass assault being prepared. And during a mass assault, as we saw at Attica, when the prison guards start shooting, nobody survives. So, yes. Uh, anyway, they wisely decided to release the hostages, uh, surrendered after they were granted uh, an interview on national news. Uh, and that's when we were ordered to uh, to stand down, which was a big relief to all of us. Anyway, as a result of that, they detailed uh, five of us after after the incident, after the penitentiary burning, they transferred the ringleaders to uh, Chrome North in Miami, the detention center there. Mm-hmm. And Chrome North was was equipped to handle these guys, but these there had been riots there before. We had been down there four or five times over the last couple of years to handle Haitian and Cuban rioters. So they decided we can't leave these guys at Chrome North. It's not secure enough. So let's have Bortag transport them to a remote location somewhere where they won't be any problem or won't have any chance at rioting. So they, they detailed five of us to Miami. Uh, I'm trying to remember who was part of that. And again, my memory fades sometimes because that was a, a very stressful, hectic detail. I remember John France being part of the, the team. Anyway, we all met uh, down in Miami, we had a detention bus with a detention officer driving. We loaded the bus with 
the uh, hardcore rioters and uh, were told that we were taking them to Lafayette, Louisiana. Now, the sheriff in Lafayette, Louisiana had just built a brand new jail. And it was a jail like I've never seen before. It was a modern cylindrical type jail, 10 stories, and it was all just like looking at a big cylinder. Mm -hmm. Huge 10 story jail. Government had uh, contracted the sheriff there to take those Cubans at, I think there was $50 a day for each inmate. And we had a, a bunch of inmates they were there indefinitely. As far as I know, they died there. There may even still be some there. Uh, anyway, we uh, loaded them on the bus, and like I said, there were, I think there was four or five of us Bortackers armed, you know, uh, armed with shotguns, and uh, they had a cage on the bus, and the only thing the bus didn't have was a restroom. So naturally, we had to stop at rest stops to let them use the bathroom. Oh. You know, we were, it was a long drive. Wow. So I remember coming into Louisiana, into the Louisiana border, and uh, decided to pull over into a rest stop. Now we had noticed that there were four or five pickups following the detention bus with Louisiana plates, you know. Yeah. So we, we pulled in, and these four or five picked up, pulled right in uh, alongside of us, and they're all uh, backcountry folk from Louisiana with shotgun racks and shotguns and whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, see us uh, get off the bus, and they approach us, and they say, uh, they could see the, uh, the Cubans on board, and the Cubans were loud, and they were trying to break windows on the bus, and they were being, you know, trying to riot and whatever. And, uh, you know, so the, one of the guys just walks up to me, and he says, uh, says, where are you taking them boys, you know? And I'm thinking, geez, I better not tell them we're leaving them here in Louisiana. Yeah. So I says, oh, we're headed to Michigan. <laughs> I says, we're, we're taking them up to a prison in Michigan. He says, good deal, good deal. He says, they can freeze their butts off up there. He says, you know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that was, like I said, yeah. our, our encounter with the, with the locals. Uh, we kept on going. We get to the Lafayette, Louisiana uh, new jail, and the warden there is a, a young uh, female in her 30s. You know, she meets us at the bus with 10 or 12 uh, deputies uh, ready to, to uh, put the shackles on the Cubans. They were already in handcuffs anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she says, uh, she said, this is, a, this is a good deal for us. She says, we'll be able to pay for our jail. <laughs> oh. And she says, uh, we're going to put them all on the 10th floor. And she says, they can work their way down with good behavior. <laughs> wow, that, no, that's, so a, that's a word. Into the jail, up to the 10th floor, uh, could, could uh, try and work their way down over the coming years. Wow, that's uh, a good word. Yeah, and the, 
become part of the process. For a few years, I participated where I went to different detention centers to actually interview the Cubans, hold review panels, decide whether or not they needed either be returned to Cuba or be released. Uh, at the time, Castro had agreed to take a plane load of them, and I think that eventually fell through. But the Cuban review panels went on for, for a couple of years. And as far as I know, uh, nobody was ever released uh, after the panels because they just got worse being incarcerated. Yeah, I, I mean, they had burned Atlanta Penitentiary down, so you know they weren't going to be out for good behavior anywhere else. No. Uh, and, and like I said, eventually, uh, over the next few years, another place that we were detailed to was St. Elizabeth Hospital in Washington, D.C. That's where they had uh, put all the mental patients from that Marielle boat lift. Oh. And uh, over the years, we were called there to make make sure when things appeared that they might riot, we were called there to stand by for uh, a few weeks. So I went down there at least three or four times to uh, St. Elizabeth. And at the time, I'm trying to think of the guy that had tried to kill Reagan. He was, uh, in, you know, uh, obsessed with the actress, her Jody. Yeah, 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 Jody Foster, yeah. Anyway, he was an inmate there at St. Elizabeth when we were there. And we'd often see him roaming the grounds. Uh, you know, he was... He wasn't kept locked up or anything. They were allowed to roam around. And uh, I remember him chasing nurses over there <laughs> from the institution. Like I said, that was another ongoing detail that cost cost the government millions and millions of dollars, you know, detailing us every other month for 30 days. Was it John, John Hinckley, right? Yeah. John Hinckley, yeah, John Hinckley. Uh, 
let me wrap up here. You know, just mentioning the book that I had told you about. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a book called Cold Zero, and it's written by Special Agent uh, Christopher Whitcomb. Uh, Christopher Whitcomb was the uh, lead sniper on the FBI hostage team, HRT team. And the reason I mention the book is that he came on a detail with us in uh, Arizona along the Arizona-Tucson-Nogales uh, drug corridor. At the time, Bortak was being tasked with actually ambushing drug runners coming up from Mexico along that corridor because it was getting real bad. Chris had never heard of Bortak, much less the Border Patrol, but he agreed to, to go on the detail with his partner. And he's got a great chapter in the book on his, uh, his mission with Bortak. Ah. So I recommend it to anybody. It's a great book. You can still pick it up uh, for a few bucks, I'm sure, because it's been out a few years. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Cold Zero, a great read. It covers his career as a sniper. Starts off when he was a sniper in Puerto Rico. And then, like I said, basically, anybody that reads the chapter on, and I don't want to go into it because it's too involved and too extent. But uh, Chris mentions a few of us by name who were there with him, but he only uh, mentioned us by first name to protect our identity, I guess, part yeah. of his, uh, his writing the book. But he does, like I said, he does mention me by my first name and a couple of the other guys, Bob Coleman. And so it's, like I said, it's really uh, a good read. And what I'll do, uh, Gil, is I'll make copies when I get to the library. I'll make a copy of that chapter on the copying machine and send it to you. Okay, so that'd you be can great. Get, yeah, you can get a, a little uh, background. And the, the term cold zero for all the non-snipers out there refers to the cold barrel of a sniper rifle when you take your first shot. Uh, the point of aim and the point of impact align, and this is your zero. The one shot you get at finishing a job, it means truth and finality. Mm. Uh, you can practice until your barrel uh, glows red hot, but the cold zero, that first irrevocable pull of the trigger, is the only statement anyone will remember. And I'm reading verbatim from, from Chris's book here. Okay. Like I said, it's a great read. I recommend it to anybody, and especially for the board actors out there who want to see what the uh, drug interdiction missions were like back then. Yeah. Uh, where, where we were actually allowed to ambush people, <laughs> yeah. which I'm sure would probably be unheard of today. Would probably get a lot of bad publicity, but hey, drug smugglers were armed, and uh, as we found out with uh, the agent, uh, or attack agent, uh, Brian Terry, I believe was, who was killed by, by uh, drug smugglers. Uh, that should pretty much wrap up one one last thing here, I've got an article from the uh, Miami Herald, which was published when we showed up 
at Chrome North. And that day we showed up at Chrome North, and back then, Bortac had issued us 30-pound flak jackets, which are not the most comfortable thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we all donned our flak jackets because there was a full-blown riot going on outside Chrome. Uh, Haitian activist, uh, the Reverend Jean Jus, was leading about a hundred rioters threatening to break into Chrome and free the Haitians that were locked up in there. Uh, let me just briefly read the article from the Miami Herald. It's entitled, Elite Riot Team Sent to Chrome. Two escapees nabbed, three still on the loose. The elite contingent of 25 U.S. Border Patrol veterans trained for riot control marched into the Chrome Avenue detention camp in West Aid uh, Saturday to prevent the recurrence of Thursday night's mass escape. And that's when we were activated, when they had a mass escape. Now, Friday night, uh, federal immigration officers captured two more of the 24 escapees, leaving only three still at large. The Border Patrol tactical team, BORTAC, is routinely brought in to quell disturbances at alien detention centers across the United States. There are men who have worked along the long U.S. border from Texas to California in the rugged desert mountains and along the Canadian border, says Perry Rivkin, District Director of the INS in Miami. They're especially trained to handle large mobs. The Bortac unit was last called to Chrome in April when a hundred detainees skipped off their stripped off their orange jumpsuits, brandished rocks, and refused to come out of their barracks. When they marched in, that camp suddenly was subdued. Rifkin said the way they marched it was an absolutely remarkable toning effect on those who cause disturbances. People know they mean business, and they do. The Bortac officers, equipped with riot gear, will supplement Chrome's full-time security force of 28 detention officers and 120 Wells Fargo private security guards. The INS REACT team responds to all disturbances at Chrome. And, but the special REACT quad is, is much smaller than the BORTAC unit. Uh, that's why they called in BORTAC. They had their own team, but uh, preferred having us down there. Yeah. Uh, the BORTAC team, it goes on to mention, the only unit of its kind in the Border Patrol will remain at Chrome indefinitely. And we did remain there for a few weeks. Maintained order. One of the advantages I had was I'm a native French speaker. Mm-hmm. Having been raised in an ethnic French community in northern Maine, I could communicate with the Haitians. Even though their French is a patois, they still understood commands and orders that, that I gave them. And the more educated Haitians, the ones that had been educated by Catholic missionaries, spoke good French, good enough for me to communicate with them. So that helped... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
negotiations there. Anyway, I just wanted to read that just to give you a brief idea of what uh, Bortak uh, faced, faced there going down to Chrome. And this is the first article, to my knowledge, that ever publicized Bortak. Uh, it was 1985, I believe, when we went down there. So yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a copy of that, too, if you want it for your records. Well, thank you very much, sir. You know what? I, I truly appreciate um, that, uh, first of all, that all the information that you put together, uh, it was a lot of hard work on your part, I can tell that. But the thing that you seem to be able to do really well throughout these podcasts is that you bring us right into that situation. It's almost like we're standing right there with you watching the bullets fly and the push-ups get done and running, you know, all, all that stuff. I mean, the way you so vividly remember everything is just an amazing ride. Yeah, well, it, it, I surprised even myself, because <laughs> most of the time I got a hard time remembering what I did yesterday, <laughs> yeah. much less uh, all these years ago. So like I said, uh, I surprised myself, and it's it's a joy to do something like that after being retired for uh, 20 years now, 20 mm -hmm. years plus. It's, uh, it, it's good to be able to to talk about these things, you know, to, to relay it, to pass it on. So I I really appreciate the effort that you're making in, in getting these uh, these stories out. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate this very much. And uh, until uh, our next podcast, I thank you. I thank you so much for uh, your service and uh, everything you were willing to share with us today. Well, you're very welcome, Gil. Thank you, and, and God bless you. This concludes part two of episode 18, our interview with retired Associate Chief Gary Labby and the history of Bortac One. Thank you so much for listening to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. If you're a mind to, please take a look at all our official Old Patrol gear offered exclusively at Old Patrol HQ. Go to Old Patrol HQ at BigCartel.com and bring your pocketbook. Also, ratings are the name of the game for these podcasts, so if you wouldn't mind going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rave review and five stars. Until our next episode, remember, ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always.